0: Well hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network where we talk about everything and just about everything beyond everything that has any connection to movies, TV, radio, communications, comic books, magazines, Anything that us baby boomers and beyond can remember, or would like to remember, or in some cases would like to forget. You know, we're here today, all four of us, for an exciting uh, half-hour show. Uh, Let me introduce ourselves around. I am Mike. I'm Smitty. I'm George. And I am Mike Z. And we're going to really look back at the year 1962... And my good buddy Smitty across the room has some very interesting things to talk about as far as the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thank the good Lord that we're all still here after that dark day that afternoon in October. I can remember it. Smitty, do you? That was before I was born, Mike, but I definitely want to hear from you and want
1: to hear from uh, George at the end of this uh, segment. And you know, absolutely, you're right. Thank God that it turned out the way that it did, because had it turned out differently, we wouldn't be here, and probably you wouldn't be listening to the show, and very likely nobody would be on this planet. We are recalling the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States, which brought with it the threat of the ultimate war. The crisis occurred from October 16th through the 28th of 1962, 13 days in which the future of the world hung in the balance. In August 1962, after some unsuccessful operations by the U.S. to overthrow the Castro regime, the Cuban and Soviet governments secretly began to build bases in Cuba for a number of medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic nuclear missiles with the ability to strike most of the continental United States. On October 14, 1962, a United States Air Force U-2 plane on a photo-reconnaissance mission captured photographic proof of Soviet missile bases under construction in Cuba. This happened after repeated assurances from the Soviets that no offensive weapons would be introduced in Cuba. President Kennedy did not want the Soviet Union in Cuba to know he had discovered the missiles. He met in secret with his advisors for several days to discuss the problem and come up with various ways to face the situation. The military, in particular the Joint Chiefs of Staff, advocated a military strike. Many members of President Kennedy's cabinet supported diplomatic efforts to resolve the crisis. In the end, it was decided that a military blockade, to be called a quarantine, would be the most effective way to deal with the situation. Ships bound for Cuba with missile components, military supplies, and items deemed necessary for the construction and activation of the missiles would be turned back. The U.S. announced that it would not permit offensive weapons to be delivered to Cuba and demanded that the Soviets dismantle the missile bases already under construction or completed in Cuba and remove all the offensive weapons. No one was sure how Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev would respond to the blockade and the demands made by the United States. The Kennedy administration held only a slim hope that the Kremlin would agree to the demands and expected a military confrontation. Khrushchev wrote in a letter to Kennedy that his blockade of, quote, navigation in international waters and airspace constituted an act of aggression propelling humankind into the abyss of a world nuclear missile war. In addition to dealing with the Soviets, President Kennedy had to deal with the military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff being firmly opposed to the quarantine measures. They advocated military action. President Kennedy was prudent in taking sufficient action to take a firm stand yet leaving room for the Soviets to extricate themselves, and most importantly, not trigger actions that could cause the launching of nuclear missiles. During the crisis, because some information was being withheld for security reasons, some nations around the world actually saw the United States as the aggressor. It was not until United Nations Ambassador Adley Stevenson displayed photographic evidence of the missiles at the UN that much of this world opinion was reversed. After many negotiations directly with Khrushchev, including two conflicting messages, and some secret behind-the-scenes negotiations with diplomats from the Soviet Union, the confrontation ended on October 28, 1962, when President John F. Kennedy and United Nations Secretary General U. Tant reached a public and secret agreement with Khrushchev. Publicly, the Soviets would dismantle their offensive weapons in Cuba and return them to the Soviet Union, subject to United Nations verification, in exchange for a U.S. public declaration, and agreement never to invade Cuba. Secretly, The U.S. agreed that it would dismantle all U.S.-built Jupiter missiles deployed in Turkey and Italy. Two weeks after the agreement, the Soviets had removed the missile systems and their support equipment, loading them onto eight Soviet ships. A month later, on December 5th and 6th, the Soviet Aleutian 28 bombers were loaded onto three Soviet ships and shipped back to Russia. The blockade formally ended at 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time on November 20th, 1962. An additional outcome of the negotiations was the creation of the Moscow-Washington hotline, a direct communication link between Washington, D.C. and Moscow. The failure of the Soviets to maintain their missiles in Cuba and essentially a public backing down of the Soviet Union was embarrassing for them. This event was the first step in a sequence that would remove Khrushchev from power. This also caused a cooling in the warm relations between Castro and Khrushchev, Castro, in his radical way of thinking, had urged Khrushchev to attack the United States because Castro believed the United States was on the verge of attempting to invade Cuba once again. Khrushchev immediately turned down his ally, pointing out what the consequences of such an attack would bring. The Cuban Missile Crisis is regarded as probably the time period in which the Cold War came closer to turning into a nuclear conflict, or possibly World War III, it is estimated that 100 million Americans and over 100 million Russians would have perished in the cataclysm. The crisis served as the first documented instance of the threat of mutual assured destruction being discussed as a determining factor in the major international arms agreement. Next year, in 1963, there were signs of a lessening of tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States. In his commencement address at American University, President Kennedy urged Americans to re-examine Cold War stereotypes, and myths, and called for a strategy of peace that would make the world safe for diversity. In language very different from his inaugural address, President Kennedy told Americans in June 1963, For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this same planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. This has just been the briefest of outlines on the Cuban Missile Crisis. We could be here for days on end talking about this event. But we did want to mention it, seeing as this is the 50th anniversary of that event. There's much material online and many books and articles written about the crisis. It is possible to thoroughly research and study this topic at length nowadays. A while back on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight, George had talked about some of the Cold War movies of the past. And in uh, the documentary area of these movies, he mentioned the docudrama The Missiles of October. This is a fantastic, well-done dramatization of those 13 days. It was recorded in 1974 and stars William Devane as President Kennedy and Howard De Silva as Nikita Khrushchev. If you ever have the opportunity to see it, I certainly hope that you do. I urge you to watch it. It is available on home video and originally was made for television. As such it is not shot on film but recorded on videotape. It has a very crisp live television look to it and the acting and portrayal of the event is first rate. In my lifetime, I've easily seen this 30 or more times. I never get tired. Of watching it. You know the Cuban Missile Crisis happened the year before I was born. Mike Z, you were just a few years old, but Mike Bragg and George, do you have any recollection to this event? As, as children did you sense anything wrong or out of the ordinary? Was there something in the air that you picked up on way back at the early age? Any, any recollections?
2: Well I most definitely have a recollection of that period. My father was working full-time in the aerospace industry at the time and he was also a graduate student at the University of Southern California. And what I remember, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time, what I recall was that in the evenings uh, there was this hushed silence as we were watching the television uh, shows at the time and also listening to the all-news station in Los Angeles. And there usually was a very uh, upbeat atmosphere in our home, but what I noticed was a hushed silence. There was a seriousness and I also recall that my mother was putting aside bottled water, uh, several bottled and also uh, putting aside uh, food that could be consumed at a later time without having to rely on any of the appliances. So there was obviously a sense that a uh, foreboding that something might happen, and so therefore in the event of a national emergency, one had to be prepared with necessary food and water for the days that might follow
0: if such a conflict occurred. Yeah, George, I remember that time quite well, Uh, probably as well as I could remember it. I know it was a time where there was fear, but I was too young to understand the nature of the fear. I remember seeing President Kennedy on the television, and I remember, as you say, on the all-news, which in our town was KNX, uh, there were bulletins constantly coming from Washington, D.C. and New York. A steady stream. A steady stream over and over and over and over again. And my mom, interesting enough, you mentioned your mom putting things away. My mom, I remember uh, putting canned goods into bags and putting them into... A, some news station, I think it was KTLA, they were saying, if it does happen, here's what you want to do to keep the food from being radiated. They didn't dare go into the arena of uh, most of us ourselves will be radiated and you won't need the food. But uh, I guess because of the, the atmosphere of just confusion and terror... Uh, I think the government did a splendid job, especially President Kennedy, of getting out and actually including the citizens of the country into the crisis. I don't think that's done nowadays. Somehow (laughs) I'm a little dubious in what I get from the news media when things happen, as evidenced by a lot of the recent headlines I won't mention as far as foreign policy. But it seemed like the government will let us know things when they find things out and i remember that and i think i don't remember it from the time because i was too young but i remember it over watching the newsreels and and the military channel and a lot of the documentaries of the time when I, as i grew older and having probably one of the best historians around my partner here smitty with the show here at galaxy smitty finding some of the resources that he's able to locate and find and and some of the uh the blood chilling facts that we didn't know at the time, and probably the American people didn't know for 25, 30 years later how very, very close we came. I understand in reading some of the retrospectives even last week, Smitty, that we were hours away from the buttons being pushed, hours, not days, or it wasn't bluster, and it wasn't blowing smoke at each other. We were, we were simply literally hours away
1: Absolutely from right. Armageddon. Absolutely, and I read, I didn't cover it in my piece, but I will share it with you now, I read that... The closest, I believe, the closest that we actually came, there was a, a submarine that was operating in the um, in the Caribbean that had nuclear-tipped missiles, and an American Navy ship dropped depth charges, and they had a uh, and you can help me on this, George. They had a um, orders that if depth charges were dropped, that I believe the the three commanders on board had to agree that they would launch the missiles. Two of them wanted to launch, one of them was against it. Is that not kind of how you... I believe that
2: recollection is correct, but what I remember about this incident was that it actually gave rise to a classic television science fiction episode uh, for the series Sequest, which you remember in the early 1990s. And what they did is they took that incident and they had an episode where Sequest went... Back in time, the epi- the show was set in the year 2010, as I recall, and what happened was they go back 50 years to the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis through a, a wormhole, and what happens is the event that you just described ended up being catastrophic. Oh, okay. And so they are having to basically reconcile the timeline, and in doing so, one of the young crew members forms a friendship with uh, a young American teenage girl, uh, and what ends up happening is They're able to resolve the timeline. That event that you described ends up being resolved peacefully. And when he comes back 50 years back for what him is, the present, he finds that same young girl uh, living in a retirement community in Florida. So that's kind of a a fun way to look at that. But, yes, uh, in in, in all seriousness and candor, it was close. You know, there's another interesting bit of trivia about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Roger Chaffee, who you might remember was among the Apollo 1 astronauts, that were killed in that fire, along with uh, Ed White and Gus Grissom. Chaffee, before he became an American astronaut, was a decorated combat veteran for his flyovers over Cuba during the missile crisis. So there were a lot of extraordinary people that were involved in this, and as you correctly noted, we were very, very close to actually being engaged in real combat.
1: It's frightening how close it came. And I think that the United States was very blessed to have President Kennedy in command because he did approach the situation with a lot of prudence and a lot of calm and uh, uh, was able to uh, circumvent the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff who were advocating a military an immediate military strike. And I
2: think also what has to be noted is that you also had an opponent on the other side of the table who was also somewhat reasonable. I mean, mm-hmm. Khrushchev... Mm-hmm. Also himself, in order for this to work, also had to be able Absolutely. to uh, you know to adapt as well. So you obviously had the right people at the right time, and Absolutely.
0: so there we are. And that's why we're still here. Well, you know, another observation was President Kennedy's respect and and his care for our friends around the world, other than just in our country. I know he was on with on the phone, and they were, they had NATO involved, and they had the other countries. I know we had. Uh, it was a, a point of contention wasn't it george weren't there missiles in turkey yes, and in there greece were. and that was a deal maker that yes there uh, were it was it became a, a, a very high stakes chess game and we talk about what if and shoulda coulda woulda but what course history took as a result of kennedy and khrushchev and the other powers in charge of the world cooler heads prevailed but there was a lot of people still upset around the world when we started pulling defense mechanisms out of their countries. So I know I, I had relatives actually in Greece, but actually some in Turkey as well as in Albania who were quite concerned that the United States has had basically sold them out. You're taking our missile defenses down, and here will come the Russians now. Thanks a lot, but no thanks. So as history unravels in the last 50 years... We see the course that the superpowers took as a result of this near Armageddon-like event. And then, as they say, time marches on, and how that affected right up to and including the disassembling of the uh, Soviet empire in the 80s because of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things that happened 60, 70, 80, 40 years ago have a direct impact on what are happening in the world this very day. Mm -hmm. So what a history lesson. Okay. We're going to have a retromercial here, and the retromercial is on something that's very important to me, clean clothes. Okay? We'll come right back. Don't go away. We will be right back here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, right here.
3: When they start making comments like this.
0: Mommy, these pajamas don't feel
3: right. They're kind of scratchy. Then it's time you made a change in your wash day product. You see, some products leave fibers feeling stiff and scratchy. But not does. Does gets clothes dazzling clean, dazzling white. But does does more than just clean. Does gives fabrics a softness no detergent can. A does wash is clean and soft. You can feel the difference. Those pajamas, your sheets and towels have a wonderful new softness because does washes softness in while it scrubs dirt out. It's the soap in does that does it. does leaves your hands soft too. Of all leading wash day products, does gives hands the mildest possible care. No detergent can do all that. It's the soap in does that does it.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, and I do want to announce that our own Mike Z uses does for his laundry.
4: Oh, I do, I do. There was a, there was a lot of dirty laundry, I'm sure, during the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis, and I'm sure a lot of does was sold that week. But I myself <laughs> use does and that's why I'm always so comfy when I'm here. Absolutely. Oh, I, understand. I
0: understand that one of the neighbors saw you come out the other morning and pick up the newspaper, and you had your horsey pajamas on, and the colors were bright, and they didn't bleed.
4: Absolutely. And my pink and blue bloomers and girdles are always nice and <laughs> oh, shiny and comfy there. and soft. So there you go. Very oh good. Oh,
0: boy, this is great. Very good. Well, welcome back to Galaxy
1: Moonbeam Nightside. And now we're going to turn it over to our good friend, George Helllock, who's going to talk to us a little bit, turning on to a fun topic primetime animation. George, take it away.
2: Thanks so much, Gilbert. Recently, The Simpsons aired their 500th episode. And The Simpsons, which started in 1988 as a cartoon short on The Tracy Ullman Show and was part of the TV advertisements for Butterfinger Candy Bar, became in 1989 a standalone show. And it developed a multi-generational following that has surpassed its predecessors in terms of brand name recognition. And now we find that primetime animation is a normal offering on uh, television programs. But it wasn't always so. And it's kind of interesting in this segment to look at the origins of that. Primetime animation actually began in earnest with the Flintstones in 1960, which ran for five years. And this primetime animated prehistoric version of The Honeymooners culminated with a full length motion picture that was released to theaters worldwide in 1966. And then Saturday morning cartoon shows that featured the Flintstones children, now all grown up, uh, were later featured in the 1970s on Saturday morning shows. But the primetime animation classic in the early to mid-60s is the one that really helped get this genre moving into the mainstream. Now, in About the mid-1960s, specifically 1964, there were two television shows titled Space Angel and Clutch Cargo, and they were often featured on local television stations in prime time in major U.S. markets, usually on either Friday and or Saturday evenings, and they dealt with, respectively, space exploration and exotic adventure themes, in which the characters featured what appeared to be real-life lips. And what this was, was a patented technique that is called Synchrovox. And these programs allow parents and children to watch 30-minute programs featuring five adventures. And so this uh, occurred in the latter stages during the Flintstones run as primetime animation started to take hold. But the crown jewel in that same year, 1964, and still well regarded to this day, Johnny Quest... Johnny Quest debuted in prime time with semi-adult themes involving secret agents, high-tech space and time exploration, traveling to exotic locales worldwide. And the plot line went like this. Johnny was the son of world-renowned scientist Benton Quest, and he was accompanied by his friend Haji, who was adopted by the Quest family while on a visit to India, their pet dog Bandit, and of course their personal guard and tutor, Roger, nicknamed Race Bannon. An interesting trivia note here, the character of Race Bannon was modeled after the famous adventure action film actor from the 1950s, Jeff Chandler. When you look at that original broadcast, you can see the striking resemblance. And with Race Bannon piloting their signature Dragonfly supersonic jet, which is essentially a small private version of the supersonic transport, which was on the drawing boards in those days, the Quest clan uh, allowed parents and youngsters alike to share weekly adventures in exciting, well-crafted 30-minute segments. Now, these segments were so popular and were rerun so many times in later years that it actually gave rise to several TV movies that were made in the 1980s and then new episodes of Johnny Quest in the 1990s and 2000s. But it's the original Johnny Quest that uh, has captured the hearts and minds of generations of parents and their children. In the early 1970s, specifically 1972, there was a short-lived primetime TV animation program titled Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, and it featured Tom Bosley in a pre-Happy Days role that would prove to be eerily similar to the role he later played as father to teenage children coping with the changes of life. Of course, in Happy Days, it was taking place in the 1950s. And when we look at the decades of the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, we also saw a whole slew of Primetime animated features, usually at Christmas time, and those Christmas features remain perennial classics. The Charlie Brown Christmas, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Little Drummer Boy, and so on. All of these features included prominent or big name actors that were doing the voiceovers, and it included such famous stars as Jimmy Durante, Boris Karloff, Burl Ives, and Greer Garson. The Charlie Brown Christmas, which has been a uh, featured uh, topic of discussion on several episodes of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight, aired in 1965, and it was a landmark program for reasons that we discussed in our program last year that addressed its religious content. The Charlie Brown Christmas was so successful that it sparked a series of annual Seasonal primetime specials featuring Charlie Brown and his friends playing baseball in the classic episode titled Charlie Brown All-Stars. And then celebrating Halloween with their dog Snoopy playing a World War II pilot fighting the Red Baron. This was, of course, the famous It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And this finally led to several full-length motion picture animated features that was released to theaters during the 1970s. And the fact that it was able to be released worldwide owed its success to being well-received in prime-time slots on major networks. Now, as we look at the origins of prime-time animation, we see the common themes of all of these programs, from the Flintstones to the Simpsons, with Johnny Quest and all of the other programs that I mentioned in between. There are three common themes. First, there is semi-adult content that allowed parents and children to watch together as a family, in prime time the second common theme is that it featured exciting story content that prompted similar interest and curiosity by all and or family type situations so that everyone of all ages could relate to that and finally we saw very strong positive content and yes even with the simpsons in which there were life lessons to be learned for both adults and kids. In fact, I want to mention to you that when I was donating blood many, many years ago, uh, it was uh, revealed to me that there was an episode featuring Bart Simpson in which he donated blood, and the Simpsons received a major award uh, for raising public awareness about the importance of donation of blood. So it's kind of interesting to see how far we've come in the last 50 years. Uh, the idea of cartoons becoming primetime fair. Now it's regarded as somewhat commonplace with a lot of great shows that we see uh, scattered throughout the different networks. But it wasn't always that way, and it's kind of fun to look back to see how far we've come.
1: What a great piece, George. And I was going to say that I remember when I was a little kid, you know, cartoons were, or animated television was pretty much relegated to Saturday mornings. And to have something come on in prime time, other than having it be a, At Christmas or in in Halloween or Thanksgiving, and I'm referring to the Charlie Brown specials, was something really unique
2: Very much so but I think with primetime animation it is so nice because of the fact that it involves all of the family so much of entertainment now has been specialized, compartmentalized into target markets and while that's a good thing in terms of being able for people to focus on specific areas of interest, I think it's interesting to note that All of us, because of uh, the fact that we're baby boomers, can remember a time when primetime animation was not just for kids, it was for adults. My mom and dad, they still love Johnny Quest, and I have in my uh, collection the original Johnny Quest program on DVD. And many times when I've gone to see my parents, I'll take those with me, and we have fun watching that and remembering those good times.
4: Thank goodness for DVD, because all of those shows now, I'm sure, are available again. Uh, About a year or so ago, I picked up uh, the only two seasons of Top Cat, which is my favorite Mm -hmm. tonight. But there's many, many shows. Of course, I remember the Flintstones. But thank heavens that all those shows still exist in one format, and the DVD is a great format. So if you remember these shows from when you were younger, there is certainly no reason to not still be enjoying
2: them. And what they do is they inspire achievement. They inspire learning. They inspire all of the positive values that you like to see in your children as they grow up and to be responsible adults. So that's a, an important aspect here, is that all of the programs that you mentioned, they had a fun character to it, but also there was a, a learning aspect as well.
0: I'm truly amazed at the evolution of the cartoon, the animated medium, since the early days of, well, long before television. But, of course, after radio, you would have the, uh, the full-length, Animated uh, the movies, the Walt Disney's, the early 40s. Uh, were there animated in the 30s? Oh, well, I know there was Mickey Mouse, of course, and uh, Betty Boop. But Mike Z and I were talking earlier this week about the Hanna-Barbera Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was an explosion of animation. When and that's that,
2: where Johnny Quest was. Johnny Sentai, Quest right and there. And the Flintstones, I mean, they were yeah. the kings of nighttime. Oh,
0: yeah. I, I, Flintstones King. carried prime time, ABC prime time. Flintstones kicked sure. off prime time uh, television. And, as did Johnny Quest, yeah. because that was also yeah. ABC. Okay. And what an experiment where actually the Flintstones was based around suburban America. <laughs> if, if you really get down to the storyline, it was an animated version basically B.C. of the honeymooners, yes. Yes. Absolutely right. I think. Uh,
4: and, so. and in an interview with Jackie Gleason, one time he was interviewed and said, "Well, what did what did you think of the of uh, the Flintstones?" And he said, "Frankly, we thought of suing them."
0: Yeah, uh, but he he really did because <laughs> wow. he, he could
4: see it as a ripoff yeah, of the honeymooners. Yeah. Incidentally, Gilbert, if you yes. ever find it, they were sponsored for a while by Winston cigarettes. Yes, there's, there's an unbelievable 30 uh, second spot of Fred and Barney sitting behind the house, up. house up lighting up a Winston up.
1: cigarette. Yes, I think we talked about that yep. on a previous show. That there is that famous Winston commercial, they were the sponsors. Well, what a great topic, George. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on that. We could certainly go on with that for a long time, but unfortunately we're running out of time, and so we're going to go ahead and close this program out. We do want to remind you, of course, that we would like to hear from you. If you have any memories of any of the things that we talk about, drop us an email. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com, and don't forget we do have a Facebook page, Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on Facebook. Lots of great pictures and more pictures and more features to come. So we do invite you to come on over to Facebook. And even if you're not a member of Facebook, you can still look at our page. It's a public page. You can look at it. So feel free to come over and check us out on Facebook. That's all the time we have on this show. We sure thank you for joining us. I'm Smitty.
4: I'm Mike. And I'm George. And I'm Mike Zee, and I'm going to go have a Winston right there now. There you
1: go. <coughs> and, and just don't get any uh, any ashes on your nice, clean clothes there, Mike. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you later, folks. Take care.